Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right. If you have Bibles, we're in 2 Peter chapter 3. Click or flip, and we will, it's a short chapter, but like we've seen in Peter, absolutely packed. So he does his typical sentences that are just loaded with deep meaning from a veteran. Peter's in a jail cell, so he's got lots of time to think about how he's going to word everything. And he's writing in the hopes that we as believers, 2,000 years later, will stick to it. Stick to the way. Chapter 1 was all about the way that you should go. And I'm just going to repeat this because it's the core of this epistle. You start with your faith and then you add seven things. You add virtue, you add knowledge, you add self-control, you add perseverance, you add godliness, you add kindness, and you actually add love to those things. Uh, Some people argue those are progressive. Some people say you work on all of them your whole life, but it definitely gives you things to do after you're saved. Chapter 2 is the opposite of that path. There's the false teacher. There's going in 20 different directions. And you add to your faith as a false teacher because they are teachers. They're in the faith. They believe in Jesus. But they add the opposite. They add self, ignorant of the word, loose tongues, unreliable, lusting after the flesh, and emptiness. And suffice it to say, there isn't a lot of love there because they're too busy telling people what to do. So in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the letters divided into the way to do it right and the way to do it wrong. And the way to do it wrong is a water without well versus the way to do it right where you got a well with water in it. And there's just two ways to go. So you can pick God's promises and blessings after you're saved or you can kind of wheedle on for 30 years until you die. And there's just an encouragement here from a veteran believer. So he starts in chapter 3 wrapping up that idea. Beloved. Again, he starts with the word beloved. Like, He's not telling us about false teachers because he's trying to be harsh or mean. He's warning us because he wants us to live a happy, joyful life. He wants us to get the blessings of the faith. Beloved, I now write you in this second epistle in which, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you might be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So, He references his other letter. This is called intertextual confirmation. And you see this a lot in the Bible. If a book's going to be in the Bible, it's often referenced somewhere else in the Bible. And that's part of when they made the decision of what to include. They included things that had internal or intertextual reliability or confirmation. So he's referencing his first letter. That means there is a first letter. So in the, and then when in, in, as you go through and you look at history and there happens to be another letter from Peter, we can start to put those in order and we can start to date them too. Um, but his point writing both is the pure minds thing. Peter's reminding them the tenets of our walk with Christ to actually get our minds straight. And to get your mind straight, you start with your heart. And this seems counter flesh. Everything in us thinks it's what we think that changes the heart. But it's not. It's the heart that changes what we think. So he gives us things to do. And in doing those things, your heart shifts over time. It's impossible to hang out with other believers every week, week after week after week, and not actually find that you like them. It's just like even with the foibles and weirdness and quirkiness, there is a point at which you're just, I love my brother and I love my sister. They make me laugh in their weirdness. Or even in their just reliability and encouragement and that blessing that if you do the things then you start to see that your heart actually changes so he says to be mindful to remember is to think on what god's done essentially he's talking about bible study here the word spoken before in verse 2 and the and the commandment of us the word spoken before he's talking about the old testament they have a testament they have a torah that we share with them Peter doesn't toss out the Old Testament. In fact, he highlights it and elevates it as one of the chief things that blesses the faith. He also then includes the commandments of us, which we call the New Testament, the epistles and the gospels written by the people who are with Jesus or who directly had interactions with the Lord. 
So the apostles and servants of Jesus. There's nothing more essential to Peter after walking in the faith and facing death itself. There's nothing more essential to him than keep your butt in the word and then keep your brain that'll follow. Move it there so that you're mindful of the words, particularly the the word-by-word kind of study. It keeps you guarded against what was in chapter 2. It's your protection against it. So if you got false teachers that are sticking to what is public, proven, and written down, they wouldn't be such false teachers. They'd be teaching what's there, the Old Testament, the New Testament. This is why we take care. It's why we study like we do. And there's a lot of other admonitions in the Bible. In in fact, this isn't just the only place. 2 2 Timothy 3, verse 15 And that from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. So it's Paul saying the same things that Peter says. Be in the Word. And he says, us, the apostles of the Lord. It's, you could argue that Peter is being arrogant there, that he's saying, like, my, what I'm saying is as important in the Old Testament. And that's one of the critiques people bring against that line that Peter says there. What do you think you're as important as Moses? And Peter's fully aware of that critique when he says it. And we should note here, he doesn't say, me, the apostle of the Lord. He says, us, the apostle of the Lord. Who else, who's the us? Who's he talking about? He's talking about the 11 disciples, he and the other 10. He's probably talking about Paul, who had a direct encounter with Jesus after the resurrection. And we're going to see later in the chapter, he's definitely referring to Paul. But this idea that Jesus is aware of the fact that Jesus' deity gave him authority. So God spoke to Moses, but Jesus spoke to the apostles. And it's equivalent. So it's only arrogant if it's not true. If it's true, it's actually reasonable that those people that heard from Jesus are actually at the same tier as those people who heard from God in the Old Testament. They're messengers apostles there so he puts it there by including the us there's definitely a tone of of humility that goes with it apostles isn't singular peter never claims singular authority anywhere in the bible um, which is one of our differences with some of our beloved catholic friends there is no assertion of a pope or a singular leader of the church even from peter's own hand just doesn't do it But it does say that the Gospels and the Epistles are as inspired authority, no less than what we see in the Torah. It brings the New Testament up to the same level as the Old Testament, which is why Christians put them both in their Bible. And it's a line like that that helps us do it. So we're reminded that we shouldn't be surprised that there are going to be some people that scoff at this idea of Jesus. And he's doing this from the first century. They're still trying to tell people about Jesus. But that Jesus said he was going to come back. So the natural question from an unbeliever is, so where is he? And what does that look like? So verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. The last days is something that Jesus said that he would return. He made a promise. He said, I'm coming back. And so the last days is everything from when Jesus lived to right now sitting here in the park. That's the last days. It's a season of time or a period of time, an era. Uh, Scoffer there presents an intellectual defiance of the church, and the lusts of the flesh show a moral defiance against what Jesus taught. And you got both. We get looped in debating with scoffers, and I think Christians do this a lot. We get looped into the argument. But when Peter presents this, there's both the intellectual and the moral. We'd be better, I think, to deal with the moral issue. And if you see people that are great apologists, great debaters, they never get lost in the argument. It always comes back to the heart. It always comes back to who the people are. So where's the promise that we're talking about? This is the common message of the scoffers or doubters. So where is Jesus? What does it look like? So, and then he adds this piece here. As All things continue as they were. It looks like today, it looks the same as it was before. So that's an interesting claim that all things stay constant here. (laughs) Hey, buddy. (laughs) Um, The core argument then behind this is what's called regression theory. Regression theory is this idea that all things have stayed constant and therefore they will stay constant. Regression theory is a way to do analysis 
so we use it in statistics, but it's also got a fatal flaw in it. This is the same regression theory is used for carbon dating. It's used for when you say, look, here's how many ice layers there are, therefore that's how old the Earth is. Regression theory assumes that everything we see today is as it's always been, that there's never been a change in these elements and in these pieces. So the idea of this belief in uniformitarianism, uniformitarianism, all things are uniform, they've always been that way, they always will be that way. It's a, it's a false statement, but it's also a faith statement. You have to believe all things have been the same with zero evidence of that because you weren't there. So it's one thing saying like, if I look in this cupboard and I don't find my cereal, I know that my cereal's not in the cupboard, but I don't know that the cereal's not in any other cupboard in the house. Right? That's the fatal flaw of, of this kind of regression analysis or uniformitarianism. That's what Peter's bringing up here, is that the pro what, what's the promise of his coming? It looks like everything looks like it did yesterday. And then the assumption is tomorrow is going to look the same as it does today. I sure hope it does, actually. Today's pretty awesome. Here's Peter's response. Um, first of all, he doesn't get into regression theory like I just did. Right? He doesn't get lost in the intellect of it. He just goes back and points out a time when things weren't the same, right? So if the assumption is all things have always been the same and everything's the same as it was, he points out the fact that no, they haven't been the same all the time. There's your flaw, verse 5. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were old and the earth was standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. Hey, this planet didn't used to look the way it does. So we get a few things here. The, the pointing to massive catalytic, cat, cataclysmic changes on the planet Earth is a response to people that doubt that Jesus exists or that he's coming back. Wait, there was a flood at one point on this Earth. This is why I think the secular world is so into attacking the narrative of the flood because it's one of the chief arguments that Jesus is going to return. At least one that Peter uses, right? Peter treats Genesis 1 through 10 here as literal, actual, historical accounts, as foundational truths. He doesn't debate them. He doesn't argue them. He assumes that his listeners believe that they're true also. And he uses it by the word of God. How does he know it's true? Because God said so. And that's what he goes with. God speaks and reality it is. He sustains it. He keeps it. He creates it. He made it. He's the first person witness and he takes his account as true, Genesis 1 through 10. And then he, they say that in verse 3, they're walking by their own lusts, and in verse 5, it says they willfully forget. So they've heard Jesus. They're, they're, again, they're, they're people that don't doubt the fact that God is, but they don't believe this same way. And I think this is more relevant today than it was in Peter's day. We have more diversity in theology within the church today than we ever have. It used to just be Protestant versus Catholic theology right? Or Eastern Orthodox, if you're in other parts of the world. But even if you look at America today, there is just no constant teaching going on. And part of that is they're not doing it by verse 5, by the Word of God. They're not using the Word of God as their core source of truth. Genesis 6, 12, God looked on the earth, behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way on the earth. Nobody cared in the days of Noah for what was true, what was right, and what was good. They just didn't care. Jesus taught Peter to make this connection. And I love this about going through First and Second Peter. We can go back to the Gospel of Mark. We can see exactly where Jesus like trained him on these things. Matthew 24, 37, or we can go to Gospel of Matthew. As in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So Jesus actually taught the disciples like, hey, the thing with Noah is going to look a lot like my second coming. It's the same kind of thing everyone's going to be corrupt. Everyone's going to be going their own way. So the simple continuance argument simply doesn't hold up because that's the same argument they used in the days of Noah. Why do you think there's going to be a flood? We've never seen rain before. There's no such thing as rain, right? And the Bible makes that very clear. This was the first time it rained. So you're preparing a boat for something that doesn't exist. That's the same argument today. Why are you so intense about reading the Word of God when it's... Jesus is clearly not coming back today. And that argument's a horrible argument, and it falls short pretty quick. So the world that then existed perished. He also points out that God has radically transformed the planet before, and he's going to radically transform it again. So what we look at today, the world hasn't always been this way. It has changed. 
Sam would like to think that it hasn't always had ticks in it, right? That's part of the curse probably, right? We don't know that from the Bible, but at least Sam says so. Verse 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition. I don't know why, but I hear perdition, and I think like Southern Baptist preaching of old. Um, Perdition of ungodly men. God said it, it's going to happen. So here's the thing, you're looking around at a beautiful day today. This is all going to go up in flame. Well, that's a happy thought for a Sunday morning, but it's what it says. Peter makes this point clearly. He doesn't dance around this point at all. Time doesn't mean much to God. And this world right now is getting preserved and it's getting reserved for fire. So what's happening on the earth right now is a time where God's taking a break and waiting for people to come into the ark. And the ark has a door on it. And that door is Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except by me. There's one boat to get into that's going to get you to heaven. Any other boat, you're going to be out in the flood, only it won't be water this time. It's going to be fire, and that's scary for me. I don't like to get burnt, so I'll hop in the boat and humbly submit to that door. Zephaniah 3.8, Therefore wait upon me, says the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey, for my determination is to gather the nations. This is why God's waiting. This is why we have a beautiful day today. He's waiting for the nations that he can assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them his indignation and his fierce anger for all the earth will be devoured devoured by fire by my jealousy. That's in the Old Testament. Peter's using what he's read in the Old Testament to say, you guys think the Messiah is coming with fire, but Jesus was the Messiah and he said he's coming back with fire. And he's separating those sets of prophecies. One set of prophecies said, I'll come as a, a suffering servant. I will be, I'll have stripes on my back. I will be mocked and scorned. But another set of prophecies about the same Messiah says, I will come with fire and judgment. And there will be no escaping that judgment when it comes for all the nations upon the planet Earth. And Peter's kind of separating those out. Just because Jesus hasn't come with fire doesn't mean that he's not going to come with fire. Just because you haven't found the cereal box yet, doesn't mean you won't find the cereal box. And he'll come like a thief in the night. But beloved, verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So Peter's still responding to the scoffers. They say, oh, I don't see Jesus coming. He doesn't look like he's here right now. And it's like, okay, but he, he has judged the entire planet once in the past with Noah. And then here's a second point. Don't forget this, beloved. And again, he's talking to people he loves. God isn't distracted by time like we are. We're very short-lived and mortal. And the older you get, the more that becomes clear. We don't have forever. This is a tent. We just live in it for a time. For God, time is like an art medium. He plays with it and orchestrates in it. He does things in it to speak to us. This is why Matthew divided his genealogy up into 14 generation blocks. 14 generations from Abraham to David, David to Babylon, Babylon to Jesus. 14, 14, 14. God plays with time. And for him, time isn't a thing. Some people would take this verse and they get really wrapped up in it and then they try to do these weird day, thousand years kinds of things. I think Peter's point here is simply like, God just doesn't care about time like we do. It doesn't matter to him the same way. First Chronicles, we're going to be doing that tonight at the Sunday evening one. They got the same thing, only they did their genealogy totally different. They showed 10 generations from Adam to Noah, 10 from Shem to Abraham, 10 from Judah to David, two sets of 10 from Solomon to exile, and then 10 more generations from exile to Jeconiah taking everybody back into the land. 60 generations. And what they're doing there is that these are the Davidic families and all of Chronicles is set up to be like, hey, what's going to happen in this 70th generation, the divine generation? God plays with time so that we can learn and see that God's in time and outside of time at the same time. I love that. If you want to worship a very tiny God, this won't even stun you. But if you want to worship an amazing God, a big God, this is pretty awesome. Our God doesn't live in the same days and times that we do. It doesn't matter. Here's another one. 
10 generations from Adam to Noah, 1,600 years. You with me? If you got notes, this is one to write down, Mike. You got 60 generations from Noah to Jesus, that's 2,400 years. What do you got for a total now? Yep, 4,000 4, years. 30 generations, roughly, from Jesus to today, that's about 2,000 years. Now you got 6,000 years. I wonder what the 7,000th millennium is going to look like. I wonder what's happening during that thousand years. We have prophecy that tells us this is how it's all going to play out. We just don't have the day or the hour. But we have everything in front of us to know that God has changed the world in the past. He's going to change it again. And there will still be life after he melts the entire planet. How is that going to happen? I don't know, but I'm looking for my ark. That should drive us to Jesus Christ. Because we're told that's where the door is, even though we don't know what the rain looks like yet. So we run to Jesus. Time means nothing and everything to God eternal. This is part of his playground. It's a moral language that he speaks to us. And I know I'm getting heady there, but let me just flip it the other direction. The psalmist, David sings in Psalm 84, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. It works for us too. One day in the presence of God is better than years of not being with God. So we pursue God with everything we got because we want one more day like that last one. And this is what God promises us. Day by day, walking with him hand in hand, we see that our life becomes something that's blessed and ordained. And, it, and everything else is a waste. Just because he didn't do anything for six, 1,600 years didn't mean that he wasn't going to flood the world. Just because he didn't do anything for 2,400 years didn't mean Jesus wasn't coming. And just because he hasn't done anything for 2,000, actually 1,990 years since his crucifixion doesn't mean he's not coming back. That makes me really want to know what's going to happen in 2033. But again, we don't know the day or the hour. You can get lost in that kind of prophecy and not just live your day-to-day -day life for Jesus. But there, it does get to be something where it's interesting. And Peter says, again, verse 8, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And then we see pieces of the Old Testament where it does decades and years and sets of numbers all over the place. So that if you want to geek out on that, you can geek out on it. But don't forget to tell your neighbor about Jesus at the same time. Don't get lost in it. Then he says this, and I like this. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack. The word slack there means lazy or tough to get out of bed. The Lord isn't slack. Don't think for a second that God's just lazy and you know hasn't gotten around to making fire and brimstone yet. That's not the problem. The Lord isn't slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's a verse most people are going to memorize as you talk about your faith with other people. He's not slack. He's long-suffering. He's waiting for everybody that wants to come into the kingdom to come in. He waited for the animals to get on the ark. You know, they, he, the, the rains didn't start coming until everybody got on board. So his promises, what are the promises? He's not slack concerning his promises. So I want to take a second and go, okay, what are the promises that God made for this age? He promised in Matthew 26, 2 that he was going to get crucified. That already happened. Jesus promised in Matthew 26, 13, the gospel would be proclaimed to the whole world. Has that happened yet? Almost. We're close. We're very close. Uh, the, the timeline of, well, and we keep making new babies too, right? So that's, that's a thing. But the timeline of Wycliffe Bible translators got moved up because of software technologies about five, six years ago. They initially thought 2050, now they think 2030 we're going to have a Bible in every country of the world in everybody's native tongue. Because of computer software, they've sped that all up. Wow, makes you want to wonder what's going to happen here in the next few years. Matthew 26, 29, Jesus says, I quote, I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He promised that we're going to have communion with him. Has that happened yet? Yes, no, he says, we're two or three are gathering my name. I'll be there too. But I think he was talking about, because he's with his disciples face to face. I think he's talking face to face. I'm not going to do this until I'm doing it with my, my, my loved ones again, my family. 
He's coming back is the promise. He's coming back. John 14, 22 and 3. Let's give this very clear. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to go prepare a place for you? He's making a new heaven and a new earth. This is a promise. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and I'll take you to myself that where you are, or that where I am, you may be also. That's a promise. God's not slack on his promises. He will not let you go. He will not forget you. He will not leave you behind. The Lord is not slack concerning these things. God doesn't make promises and not keep them. I think the entirety of the Old Testament is to show us that he doesn't make promises without keeping them. He will keep his promises. And he will do it over time and years. And we can't get lost in the, well, it doesn't look like he's here today. That argument is foolish and it's extremely human and it's in the flesh. It's just a fool's argument. He's long-suffering, which means to be patient, to wait, to have mercy. He suffers in sin, watching human beings, adulterer and idol worship, year after year after year after year. You would think from God's perspective, it has to be torture to see how many millions of people don't even think of him on a day-to-day basis. They've just forgotten the God that made them. This is like the, the, the problem of many mother-in-laws. Their son gets married and then he never calls. They're like, you never call. I, I birthed you into the world and I don't even exist anymore. And so that they become someone who calls and, 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 it's, and it's there. God's so much more than that. He made us, he loved us, he knit us together in our mother's wombs. And then people don't even call. They don't even check in. God desires to end sin. I think God's presence is a holy fire. And sin can't exist in his presence. So he desires that to happen, but he's waiting because he's waiting for the people to be pured pured by the blood of Jesus, by the sacrifice on the cross, so that they can stand in God's presence, so that he can be with us. And he's waiting for that. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, this is the thing where you get kind of people that they're just not in the joy of the Lord, and they get wrapped in knots over this kind of stuff. Well, wait, does that mean everybody gets saved? No, it actually says he's not willing that anybody should perish. He doesn't want people to perish. Well, then why does God let people perish? If he doesn't want them to perish, why does he do it? Because he gave us free will. He created beings that don't just obey when they're told. In that, we can love even when we're not forced to, and we create a different relationship through freedom than we do through compliance. Man, it's just awesome. Peter's rationale points to the heart that God's will is to save, right? This started with a, well, I don't see God, and his thing is, but he sees you. He doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to get in. John 3, 16, you know this verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That doesn't mean everybody's going to heaven. It means there's a way for everybody to, uh, to stay on their path to heaven or to go to heaven. And also in, in Peter, it says, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Repentance becomes then the central issue of not going to hell, not burning and perishing with the rest of them. Going to heaven has everything to do with repenting. Well, what are you re- repenting from? Yourself. And I honestly, I love kids. But they're little sin bodies. That's what they do. They think of themselves. They think of themselves all the time. They're constantly thinking about themselves. And part of moving from kid to adulthood is to think of others. Part of moving from the flesh to the spirit is to be born again and to start a new life in Christ where you say, I'm going to live for the Lord, not for myself. Repentance. You're going to turn from the direction you started on. The younger a kid does this, the happier the kid will be. The longer we stick with it, the more we long suffer like our God, the happier and closer to God we get. It's simple. Come to repentance. Notice he doesn't say come to heaven. Not, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to heaven. It doesn't say that. It says that all should come to repentance. We don't get ourselves into heaven and there's nothing we do to get there. All we can do is repent. That's the only action we have power over to get in this situation. And there's other passages of the Bible that even say the Holy Spirit has to move in your heart before you're even thinking about repentance. So there's that thing. So do we have free will? Do we not have free will? Well, let's just keep reading the next set of verses. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night 
in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, but and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Interesting language. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. I don't want to be in this oven when it goes like that. This is crazy. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Gosh. First of all, thief in the night. I think most of us are familiar with that phrase. Let's just be reminded. Matthew 24, this image of thieves coming in the night. Some of them come quick and quiet to take things away. Other thieves will come in the night and make as much noise as possible so that the homeowner stays in their bed to scare them. A thief in the night is knowing that there's likely a homeowner in the house when they show up. They don't care who's there to see them and hear them. So you got these different images. It sounds like the one Peter's thinking of is one that comes with verse 10, a great noise, right? God's going to come. Everybody's going to know he's in the house. Some people will be terrified by that. Some people will be like, hey, I got, I, I'm ready to go. Like, I already got my bag packed. I'm set to go. Matthew 25 encourages us to actually be ready for this day and be prepared for it. Kingdom of Heaven's like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish. Five of them were wives. From the foolish took their lamps. They took no oil with them, oil being an image of the Holy Spirit. But when the wise took flasks with oil in their lamps, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all came drowsy and slept. Right? Have the lamp full. Be ready to go. Be in the Holy Spirit. Be living in that kind of way because the bridegroom is delayed now for 1,990 years. But that doesn't mean to not have the lamps full, ready to go, excited for that time. There's a whole video on like Hebrew weddings and how they work, and, and that's not the point of what we're doing today. But just that image of being ready, being joyful when the bridegroom shows up and being happy about it, it's such an amazing thing. Be watchful, be awake. It's interesting that in his youth, this is the thing Peter couldn't do. Remember Gethsemane? Jesus asked him to pray in the garden. And that's the thing he failed to do is just be watchful and to pray. And all he said is just watch for me. Keep an eye on me, right? This is a tough time. I need you. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't stay awake. Same thing that happened with the, the, the virgins in the parable with Matthew. And I think that's a message for us. The Lord's going to come like a thief in the night. The heavens and earth will pass away with a great noise. We need to be ready for when that happens. Be ready for it. And that's not saying God's going to steal anything but his own people, things that already belong to him, right? It doesn't mean God's a thief. It means he's like a thief, will come as a thief. Here's the part that gets me about this passage. The heavens will melt. That's not this planet earth that we're on. That's, that's going to melt up there. What does that look like? And this is like when Noah said rain's coming and everybody's like, what's rain? Like, I don't know what that is. I don't know what this looks like. And I don't think any of us do. But Peter somehow or another knows that Jesus has taught him this idea of fire. And he's looking at the Old Testament prophets and getting this image. The earth and the works. So the earth we stand on will burn, but the works of it. In the ancient world, when they talked about the workings of the earth, they were familiar with volcanoes, you know, Mount Vesuvius, Mount Etna. They knew what a volcano was and they knew what lava was. But most of them had only had it described to them. They didn't have photographs. So they, they would tell about the earthworks, the things under the earth that seemed to be moving and shaking. Uh, oddly enough, the works of the earth will melt with a fervent heat. So even the lava is going to melt. Think about that. Peter would only know of volcanoes in, in how they work, but he didn't know that volcanoes operated about 570 to 2,000 degrees. They're hot. And so for that to actually melt, for elements to melt, as it says in this passage, elements melting would take massive amounts of heat to melt. Some elements you need to get up to 100 million degrees. Where in the universe do you get something that hot? Well, Steph's getting a tan from it right now. The sun is easily that hot. Like, we're not even talking about things that far out of our universal knowledge of science. But we are talking about that kind of heat showing up on this planet. 
So what do you do to get out of it? Digging a bunker isn't going to help you. Right? If we're melting elements and the heavens, earth, and the works below it are all going to burn and melt, your bunker won't save. You're just putting yourself in an oven. Like that's all you're doing. It's just going to be a more miserable death. So if any of you have a bunker, use it for, you know, friends and family to have a good laugh. But it, according to what we see in the Word of God, that's not going to help you in the day of judgment. There's no hiding from God. And he, it's almost kind of funny to think that you could. It's like Adam and Eve putting leaves on. The, what you do to avoid this fiery death is you look at your holy conduct and your godliness. This is something that we even train domesticated animals to be decent, good, God-fearing people, right? To be holy in your conduct. Don't do things that are horrible to each other. To be godly. Godly as defined by the, the Old Testament law. That as we try to do it, we fail and we realize that the law just convicts us because we're guilty of breaking it. But holy conduct and godliness is that despite the fact that we're sinners, we do everything we can do to keep that to every letter that we can do it. That's the only thing that saves me from fiery judgment, which is nice. I don't have to build my bunker anymore, but I can still dig a hobbit hole. Yep. Verse 12 says, here's another thing you can do. Look for and hasten it. So not only are we looking for Jesus to come, we're actually trying to speed it up. Well, how do you speed it up? Look at the promises of God. He wanted to get the gospel out to the world. That's our job. You speed up God's return if we get that job done quicker. So if you got a neighbor that doesn't know about the Lord, like work that relationship. Get it to where they can hear about it. Here's the question, and I've asked this before. Who's the last person to get saved before God returns? And if that's your neighbor and we had to wait an extra four or five years and pay bills and rent because of you, I got an issue with that. Like, go tell them about Jesus because we could be waiting on that person to be the final one that God knows will come into the kingdom. So we tell everybody about Jesus because I just, I consider it the shotgun approach. Everybody's going to know about it. Now and then we hit. Uh, we can actually do that to hasten things up. Um, we can't do anything for our own salvation. That's interesting. No works will save us. But we can hasten the day of the Lord's return by proclaiming the gospel to everyone we know. I think that's just wonderful. Verse 11, holy conduct. Verse 9, evangelism. Prayer is one of the things we can do. Psalm 22, 19. But you, O Lord, don't be far off. Oh, my help, come quickly to my aid. We can pray for the Lord to return. That's one of the things we can do. Verse 13, nevertheless, we. We're different. We look for God's salvation. We trust in the one that saves. Where fire destroys impurity, it refines the pure. We want it. Bring it on, Lord. Even though Bonnie doesn't pray for patience, most of us want the Lord to refine us. And I think Bonnie does too. It's just the patience thing is down the road a ways. New heaven, new earth. Just like with Noah, there was a new earth and the heavens changed, right? The moisture left the atmosphere and it came down in the form of a water cycle and it started a water cycle on this planet. So the heavens changed and the earth changed with Noah. It's exactly what's going to happen with God. Here's another promise of God. And I'm going to bounce around a little bit. Isaiah 65. And again, the reason I go here is because Peter's not just pulling this out of thin air. He's looking at the scriptures and he's coming to his conclusions. It's why he says what he says. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, which means we should be able to look at something. And he's telling Isaiah to look at this thing that's in the future. I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. In Isaiah 66, 22, he says it's going to be permanent. When God reshapes the planet again, new heaven and a new earth. And again, you might be like, well, he's actually making another planet somewhere else. He's going to teleport us to the other. Okay, whatever. When we get to this new place after this place fries, it's going to be the permanent home for humanity. It's not going to change again. There's a judgment that's coming and it'll be the final one. We know that the sea will not be on this new heaven and earth anymore, Revelation 21. There'll be no sea. So that makes you think, well, where does all the water go? Because there's still enough water on this planet to flood it again if we wanted to. 
So the fact that there's no sea would be an undoing of the flood of Noah. In other words, most of that water goes back up into the atmosphere. Revelation 21. Saw a new heaven and new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. There's going to be a new capital city, but with the same old name. Coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's Emmanuel, God with us. That's one of the things that's remarkable about this age after the fire. God will actually be with us. He will dwell with them. They will be with his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for the words are trustworthy and true. Write it down. Document it. Peter's writing this letter to his beloved friends in the church because he wants us to be reminded of this. And some of us don't want to be reminded that this is going to go. And I think God created a beautiful earth. I love this planet. I want to be a good steward of it. I want to garden in it. I want to grow things, make order out of chaos. He knew that this world would be a good place for humans, but it's not the place for humans. He's preparing that place for us. If your imagination is robust, that becomes a great draw for coming into the kingdom of God. I want to be in the kingdom of God because I want to see that after seven days God made this. I want to know what he's done over 2,000 years and what kind of place he's going to build for us. I'm curious what my tree fort looks like in the new heaven and the new earth. Like that's something I want to know. And for those with less imagination, become a believer because it's good and it's right and it's true. And that's a practical way to come into the kingdom. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, that's the third time he's used that word, beloved. I love you guys. Family, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot, spot and blameless. And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. Be diligent, stick to the path. This is what he said in chapter one. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, kindness, and love. Stick to it. And be diligent in it. And then, interesting, when I'm thinking of diligent, I think of like working and leaning forward and going into it. But he's saying to be diligent in peace. Right? We work hard at it, but there's no, there's no striving behind it. We're diligent in those things. We're not ashamed of it. We're not anxious about it. We're not contentious. We're at peace. The word there is shalom. We're at peace with each other. We're at peace with our God. When Jesus shows up, we're doing all right. Good to see you, Jesus. It's about time. Without spot and blameless. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 13, this is the fault with the, the false teachers. They're the opposite of that. Right? And he's flipping it now. Be without spot and blameless. Be the opposite of those people that are just pushing their own will all the time. Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove his transgressions. I'm good with the purifying fire because my transgressions were gone because Jesus said so. How do you know Jesus said so? I take that one on faith. But I also have very good intellectual reasons to put my faith in that. Long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. The equation of those two things. Every day that God waits is because somebody's getting saved. And some believer is out there doing their job helping them come into the kingdom. Every single day. You might be taking a day off, but God's not. As our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Wait a sec. I thought the world said Paul and Peter didn't get along with each other. They're at each other's throats all the time. Doesn't sound like that here at the end of Peter's life, does it? Sounds like he started to get along with Paul. Peter might have been referring to some of these other things. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds like Paul says the same things Peter did, doesn't it? They actually kind of agree on everything. So he says, my beloved brother Paul. Like, it's one thing to say that's my brother. That's brotherly kindness. It's another thing to say my beloved brother Paul. That means he learned how to love him. And that's what he just said in chapter 1. you got to do both, brotherly kindness, but eventually there's a love there. At the end of Peter's life, he loves that Paul guy. He's, he's on fire. 
He's a hot button. He ticks people off. He gets stoned on occasion. But dang, I love that guy. My beloved brother, Paul. In Galatians 2, Paul writes about how he got in Peter's face. We should know that there was a showdown between these two. When Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. That's pretty harsh words from Paul. So you would say, okay, well, just because they got into it must mean they hate each other for the rest of their life. That's how the world thinks. But if you then follow that up with 2 Peter, actually, they didn't spend their whole life hating each other because they had a falling out. They came around. Now, if they're that confused, if they're that different on doctrine at one point in their life, how did they come back together? Well, for starters, Paul called them out and said, you're saying that because you're flesh. You're not saying it because Jesus said it. And eventually then, we don't get the documentation of this, but according to 2 Peter, it must be that Peter came around because Paul never backed off of that. Right? And he said, according to the wisdom given to him. So he's referring to Paul's letters where Paul never backed off on it. What was the topic of contention between them? Paul thought that Gentiles should hear the gospel. And Peter thought they should become Jews. And there was a, a difference there. And Paul wrote about it. He talked about it in Galatians. He goes on with it. The fact that Peter doesn't disagree with him here says that Peter changed. He actually came around on an opinion. And I think as believers, we'd do well to do that. Our peace with each other, to be pure, to be ready for God's return, means we actually come to terms with each other. And we do it by going to the Word of God. And Peter... In, in fact, in saying this, according to the wisdom given to him, Peter's saying Paul has wisdom. Paul actually gets some things that I've learned from this guy. I've grown from him. That means that Peter, one of the apostles, one of the official crew that walked with Jesus, learned something from somebody that was less mature than he was. It'd be easy for Peter to say, I learned from Jesus himself. I'm just right and go to his deathbed with that bitterness. But he doesn't. He lets it go. You're right. Jesus never said not to go to the Gentiles. In fact, now that I think about it, he actually did say to go to the Gentiles. <laughs> he calls them out publicly. The world loves to point out the differences between Peter and Paul. The Bible loves to point out how they resolved and made their relationships right again. There's two pastors that I know that had a falling out 20, 30 years ago, and they were pretty close when it happened. And that becomes the drama, right? And you go talk like, well, how did you guys, what, what happened? And like, are you guys still apart or different? And then, the, you know, they split the church, went two different ways. And people get into that drama. But if you talk to either one of them today, they'll be like, that's my brother. I love him. I adore him. We're back on good terms. We had a falling out because God was stirring the nest to start a second church. So he was being drawn out to go do that. And then they've realized that, and the both churches continued to exist and thrive. There wasn't one that withered up and died. They both grew. And so they realized, oh, God was doing something there. Years later, different relationship. It's easy to read the scriptures and see it as like one spot on a timeline without recognizing that Peter lived a whole life. And he, he's luckily not the guy that screwed up so much in the, in the Gospels. He's actually quite an amazing guy in his old age. Back to our chapter, verse 16. As also in all his epistles, still talking about Paul, speaking in them of these things in which there are some things hard to understand. <laughs> okay, so he's saying, yeah, when Paul writes, he's not easy to understand. He's, he's thick, this guy. He's an academic. Which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You know, when Peter is confirming all of Paul's writings, Galatians 2 has already been written at this point. He's confirming where Paul wrote that he disagreed with Peter and he was right. And Peter's confirming that when he says this. Here we see a tone of affection, love, and family, not rivals, not bitterness. Incidentally, his reference to Paul and all his writings in this verse, verse 16, this is part of why they put all of Paul's epistles that they could verify into our New Testament. Intertextual confirmation. By Peter saying that these writings were good, they get included. He didn't just say they were good, though. Like He said they were hard to understand and that there's people that twist them and, and get all worked up about them. Untaught and unstable people. Um, and he talks about people twisting things. But that's another thing. When he says these, and he says that these epistles 
are wisdom given to you and that and he speaks in these things as they do also the rest of the scriptures he's elevating paul's writing up to the old testament and up to the gospels and he's saying they're just as good for your learning as the rest of the scriptures think about what he just did with that sentence so peter says paul's writings should be in there therefore they're in there and we see that as the 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 bible has as we go through church history and look at how the new testament was put together largely that was one of the major concerns of the the catholic or the the unified body as a whole to have a unified book that everybody was reading and the thing that got letters in there or not was the veracity and the degree to which they could verify they were written by the person that they said they were the only exception is hebrews which appears to be written by a committee and was early on confirmed by all of the church so then this idea of people twisting <laughs> We just got through chapter 2 with false teachers, and then he's making this other reference to people twisting the scriptures. Peter believes that he's made this idea very clear that with Paul, he's got some tough stuff, but it shouldn't be twistable. It's clear. So when Peter writes, he's writing it clearly because he knows his brother Paul is writing it in depth. So he does things at a level where it's like, I don't need to get that deep on it. And he's one of the heads of the church, right? He's one of the apostles. So... To twist something in the Greek, this one got me. It's a reference that the Greeks used for a particular torture device. It's called the rack. You'd tie somebody's feet and arms on the rack, and then you'd use a crank to stretch them as far as you could. Why are you stretching them? Because you want to get something out of them. And people do the same thing with the scriptures. They put the Old Testament and tie it down. They put the prophets and tie them down. They take the Gospels and tie them down. They take the epistles and tie them down. And then they stretch them to get whatever they want out of them. And they keep doing it. So the twisting tactics look different. If we go back to the second chapter, there were this idea of people taking one verse and applying the world's expectations on the Bible. That's taking it out of context. You can thread together topical texts that don't relate to one another, and that's taking it into a false context because it appears to be biblical. You can misinterpret words and phrases, not look at the original languages, which creates false expectations of the scriptures. Then this is the worst. This is in chapter 2, verse 10. This is what Peter talked about. You, you can ascribe your own will onto the text and read it that way. That's called a false will or a false teacher, and you can do it to yourself. Chapter 2, verse 15, you can forsake the right way. You can minimize or ignore parts of the scriptures, which I think this chapter alone should give good argument for not doing that. Look at the Old Testament. Look at the New Testament. Look at the Gospels that we've written. Look at the epistles that Paul has written. All of these things have been put together in this chapter in one place. Do it all. Verse 5, they forgot Noah. That was the false text. This is what they, the scoffers did, which he's still responding to, by the way. The scoffers forgot about Noah, and then they made a statement. Well, we have people doing that today. We have people literally that call themselves Christians that say you don't need to study the Old Testament. I've met them. I was shocked by hearing this for the first time. But it's becoming a large movement in the, the American church today. It, it, you can take certain parts of the scriptures and just ignore them. I don't like Paul because I don't like how he talks about men and women. So I'm just going to ignore Paul because he's a bigot. You can't do that. If you do that, you're a false teacher, even if you claim to follow Jesus Christ. You can't just pick and choose things. So Peter's point here is stick to the way. Don't be led astray by these scoffing, and then he called them ignorant and unstable. Unfruitful people that have strong opinions about how fruitful people should live, worship, and study God's word. If there's joy in the church that you're going to, and you're blessed by the teaching that's there, don't listen to the rest of the world as to how to read the Bible. There's fruit here. There's not fruit there. Or very, at very least, ask, like, well, what kind of fruit do you have in your life? To their own destruction, the danger of this is that God is coming back and there will be destruction. So they, they're, they're putting themselves in a tough situation as they do the rest of the scriptures. Again, elevating Peter's clarity, elevate, elevating Paul's writing and his thinking right alongside the writing of Peter. It's just amazing. Verse 17, we get to the therefore. You therefore, again, beloved, I love you guys. Since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away by, with the error of the wicked. 
You should know this now. Even if we're in a park with many distractions, you should know this. You should know that what the Bible says is true and what the world says is generally wrong. Yet the world comes to us in the form of people that are halfway Christians, that with the expectations of our culture, do it this way. You got to do it like that. You have to do this. I don't want, if I'll do this with you, but you got to do it my way, not your way. That's how the world comes at you. You know this beforehand in that he's writing this in a letter. So now that you've read the letter, you're responsible for it. One of the uh, joyful catches of the scriptures, the more you read them, the more you're accountable to them. So some people's solution is to not read them, which has some logical sense, but spiritually it's kind of a mistake. He says the word beware. Uh, again, when you see the word be, beware, it's usually this Greek word that has to do with a soldier that's on duty at the gate. And if you fall asleep at the gate, everybody behind you is at risk. Your job is to stay on guard because you are actually guarding everybody in your life to hear the scriptures as they're written, to hear God's word as it's been spoken. So we're supposed to be on watch. We're supposed to beware of false prophets that come to us in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. False prophets wouldn't be false. They wouldn't be called prophets if they didn't look and sound good. Go on YouTube. Ask any biblical question you want. You will have as many false prophet clips as you do people that actually teaching the scriptures. It is so inundated right now that people need clarity from a human being that has the fruit of Jesus in their life. It has to be a one-on-one -on -one relationship. You can't go online and figure this stuff out because you'll be lost amongst the false teachers, the false prophets. Matthew 16, 6, Jesus said, Watch and beware the leaven of the, of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees and Sadducees were the experts. They were the pastors. They were the teachers of the law. And we think of Pharisees and Sadducees as Christians. We just think, oh, they're the nasty people in every show we've ever seen. They weren't the nasty people. They were the leaders of the church that failed to recognize Messiah when he showed up. To think we don't have people leading churches today that are those people is a dangerous assumption. You have to test them. And it's hard to say that when you're teaching the word. You need to be testing me just as much as anybody on YouTube. Either I'm teaching what it says or I'm not. And if I'm teaching what it says, then listen to it, hear it, because it's not me talking, it's what the scriptures say. Luke 11, 21, 21 when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are at peace. Be a strong believer. And when you're on watch, you can be at peace. Your children can be at peace. Your family can be at peace. Everybody who knows you can know. I at least know one Christian who lives it for real. They're not hypocrites. They're not just doing it for the money. They don't have money buried in their bathroom walls. Right? Reference to the Joel Olstein stuff. Sorry, that got in there. The false teachers are wells without water. Peter called them swelling word people. They got big words that sound really good. And he also called them polluters, right? They just muck it up for the rest of us trying to actually do what God says. They make it harder to be a believer. In fact, I just want to go through all the names that Peter has used. Peter's a fisherman. He's really blunt. He said, false, wells without water, swelling words, polluters. Verse 12, brute beasts. I like that one. Verse 13, spots. 17, dry wells, 19, slaves, 20, entangled. Now he's calling them dog and sow, right? Verse 3, scoffers, forgetters. Verse 16, untaught. Verse 16, unstable. Now he's saying they're actually wicked. Like he's, he's worked himself up. They're wicked. They're not rabbi. They're not learned ones. They're not pastor. They're not teacher. They're not the people we give the titles to. They're not even close. They only give their own opinion and they do it really loudly with as much clickbait as they can. It's about what you should do, not what the scriptures say. There's a constant resistance to this basic, simple, clear path of righteousness that Peter gave us in chapter one. Constant push to do it differently. Peter then frames it as evil here when he says wicked. It's evil. Evil isn't a guy in a red suit with little horns. That's the world. Evil is the one that wants to destroy the righteousness of the church and the purity of God's people. That's what Satan goes after. 
and he uses evil people stuck in their own will to do it. They're doomed to destruction, and it's a serious thing. It's a serious topic. Fall, don't fall from your own steadfastness. Stick to your guns. You know what was right, and just because you're not feeling it two weeks later, stick to it because you know what was right. Don't get lost in petty disputes and squabbles. Be steadfast. Know where you stand and exist there. Don't be led away. What are you not getting led away from? Chapter one's path that he gave us. The study of the word, fellowship with the saints, worship, prayer, stick to it. It's not magic. It's just what works every day. Verse 14, Peter adds purity. Stick to your purity. Pursue it. It's not easy to get. It's not easy to do on a day-to-day basis, but stick to it. You go a few days and you'll be like, man, I've lived pretty righteously for a few days. And then temptation comes back. It's right there. And who's doing that? Wicked people. They don't have any interest in your growth. They're not interested in how you grow in the kingdom. They're interested in you doing what they say you should do. Here's the beautiful end after all that serious stuff. Verse 18. Listen to how he ends this out. But, so that's all the negative. Here's the but to the negative. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. I like how he just wraps it up in one sentence. It's like he leaves you with that beautiful ending. Our life is not an intellectual set of concepts, right? We're here in a park teaching and learning in a, in a very traditional way like they have for thousands of years. But our life is not about our intellect. It's about how we live. Grow in grace. It's not think the right thoughts get it all right. You can have everything messed up, but you can still grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you can do it every day. This is why we don't bicker about some of the things that aren't worth bickering about. It's wicked to do that. It's wicked to bring that into the church. Our life is to grow in grace, which means getting better and better and better at reflecting God who is grace and who gives grace. We give. How do you give grace? When people screw up, and you let it go, that's mercy. Grace is to do something they didn't deserve or they didn't earn and to just do it in love, just to love on people. Like Tom bringing fruit salad today. None of us earned that fruit salad. He just did it because he loved us. You haven't even had it yet. That's righteous. That's good. Grow in that. Spend more time on how to be nice to people and how to do things they didn't deserve, ask for, or earn because you want to be more and more like Jesus Christ. I love that. I think that's the best thing in the world. Like grow in grace. And you grow in grace within a family of other believers. Our life is to also then grow in knowledge. Study and learn. Keep getting better. There is something about knowing things. You can't be steadfast if you've never learned it. So you can be a believer for a long time. Never take the time to really learn the faith. How are you then going to communicate it to other people in a simple way? The most intelligent people in the world are able to communicate complex ideas in very simple ways. This is why I love Peter. I think Peter was almost smarter than Paul because he was able to communicate it so clearly, so directly. Then I can live it. Not just any knowledge. It's not like go learn about insects necessarily. It's to learn about that of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the knowledge that's important. Other knowledge is wonderful. Go for it but also commit time to the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You don't grow outside grace and knowledge. We never grow without those things. You grow in grace and knowledge. If you feel like you're, you're flatlining in your faith, switch it up, right? You, like, honestly, I, you go to a, like, we went to a pastor in, in Madison for years and years and years. I love him. He's a brother. But after five years, I'd pretty much heard the stories. You know, I'd pretty much heard his way of communicating these things. And so we started doing, you know, more and more sermons on, online and stuff. And then the Lord called us elsewhere. But it's good to switch up your teachers every so often, right? Grow, keep growing in knowledge. Don't stop growing. Growing in grace, if you flatlined, like look around the room on a Sunday and say, who can I bless next week? What can I do to bless them? And it's just one of those things like you have to just be diligent, as he said earlier in this chapter. You have to be diligent about it. Decide to do it. God gives us this as a tool, and there's no end point for these. It's foundational, and it's eternal, it's basic, and it's a sound platform on which we can do it. Start doing it, don't stop doing it, and persist in doing it. Chapter 1, Peter said, persevere. 
stick through it. This is the problem with an emotional gospel. It's not about feeling it. It's about doing it over and over and over again. And when you feel it, what a great add-on. But you commit to it. And then the end of this, to him be the glory both now and forever, amen. Peter never takes the glory for himself. And he just wrote a genius letter. Like he could end the letter saying, listen to me, I got it right. Every word in here I picked out. He could have done that, but he's like, no, all glory to God. Far from hiding, far from being scared of a little girl at the end of the book of Mark, here's Peter saying, stick it out, glory to God, boldly going to his own death and doing it. And he's at peace with it. I don't get a sense that he's worked up or anxious, but I know as a human being he was worked up and anxious. But he's found his grace. He's found his knowledge. He knows who he is. He knows where he's at. He's not running from anything anymore. This is the Peter that we saw in the Gospels that screwed everything up. But at this point in his life, he's got everything right. He's grown in grace. He's grown in knowledge. And who gets the glory for that? Not Peter. God does. We give it to God. Thank you, God. He wrote the book. We're just returning to it. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you, Lord, that we were able to study your word. Lord, it's not just about the knowledge, it's about the grace. And Lord, we want to know you. We want to grow closer to you. We want to know what your call is on our life. We want to live differently tomorrow because of what we have learned. And so, Lord, I pray we take this word and we look at our lives, we inspect it, and we move forward with resolve. Lord, help us to do it steadfastly. Uh, Help us to do it with joy and with peace so we can just be settled in it. There's no anxiousness. There's no desire for more or or less of anything other than what you give us. Lord, that we can be at peace with the grace that you've provided um, and that you get all glory and all honor forever and ever. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.